Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would give us the kind of confidence that we should have in response to the passage that's before us. Lord, not a confidence that is presumptuous or that's based on our own abilities, but a confidence in you, a confidence that you have given us your spirit and your spirit fully knows your will. And Lord, a confidence based on the fact that you have been pleased to set your love on your people from before the foundation of the world. And Lord, we pray that you would cause our, our confidence and faith in you to be unshakable in response to these things. And Lord, we ask that the fruits of the Holy Spirit would flow out of them. That our faith in you and our certainty that you will accomplish all your good purpose and our experience of your Holy Spirit would make us people who love, people who feel joy, who walk in joy, people who are always hopeful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, and believing. Lord, not because of our ability, but because of, because of you. Father, we commit these requests to you, and we ask your help in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open this morning to Romans chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 26 through 30. Romans 8, verses 26 through 30. And I can't resist uh, doing this, so please just bear with me, all right? I'm, you know, I'm just kind of asking you to put up with me. Um, there's not a chiasm in this text, but there is one in the, worship so, in, in, the, in the order of worship, all right? And the chiasm that's built into the order of worship, which I didn't, I didn't consciously intend for this to happen, it just, it, I noticed it after it had happened, it really gives you the two points of this sermon, okay? So if you noticed, the, two, the passage that was the call to worship, Isaiah 14, 26, and 27, celebrates the way that God is going to do exactly what he intends to do. God is going to accomplish all his purposes. Nothing that God sets out to do is going to, he's not going to fail in any of that. The second text makes that same point, Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. So it's like waving the banner of God's sovereignty and his unassailable ability to do all his good pleasure. And then the third text, John those passages from John 14 through 16, those texts focus on the Spirit and the way that the Spirit is our helper. And another way that you could translate that word that's rendered there, helper, is advocate. So the Spirit's our advocate. And then we come to our sermon passage, and the first two verses of the passage, Romans 8, 26 and 27, are going to be about the Spirit as our intercessory advocate, our helper. And then the last verses, verses 28 through 30, are really about the way that God accomplishes all his good purpose. So 
So that's, those are the two big thrusts of the passage that's before us. The Holy Spirit's our help, helper, and he's going to intercede for us and be our advocate, and God is going to accomplish what he sets out to do. And before I get into, um, before I get into where this sits in the context, Romans 8, 26 through 30, how it, how it relates to the rest of Romans 8, I first want to try to illustrate this to you um, in, a, in a way that is kind of unfortunate and worldly, but nevertheless, I think it, it, it makes the point I'm trying to make. So maybe you read or heard about this NBA referee named Tim Donaghy. Uh, he's the guy that was throwing games between 2003 and 2007. Actually, he wasn't throwing games. He was, he was um, making sure that the team that he had bet on and that all his friends had bet on was going to win. And the way that he was doing this was the way a referee can. He, he was uh, calling an abundance of fouls on one side and not the other. He was uh, making sure that the team that he told his buddies, uh, he told his buddies this team would win, and he was making sure that that team would win. And, and here's why I tell you this story. Imagine, imagine, now this was not the case. The players in the game, they did not know that this was the case. But imagine if you were a player in a game, a basketball game, and you knew that the referee had guaranteed that your side was going to win. How would that affect the way you played? You shouldn't go out there and expose this by, by uh, being presumptuous. And No, you should play hard, but you should, you should play with utter confidence and joy because you know that you know, there might be a close call near the end of the game. If I go charging into the basket, I might run over somebody. It's going to go my way. It's not going to be a charge. It's going to be a block. We are going to win this game. No matter what happens, we are going to win this game. So there should be, I think, if you are a player with that kind of knowledge, there should be a kind of joyful confidence, both because of the helper that you've got, the referee, and because of the guaranteed outcome. And, and I think that in a, in a big way, this is what Romans 8, 26 through 30 is about. There should be a confident joy that marks us because of the helper that we've got, the Holy Spirit, and because of the guaranteed outcome that Paul sets forth in this passage. Now, having said that, let's back up and think about what Paul is really doing in Romans chapter 8, and, and really in Romans 7 and 8, uh, because this is, this is really, really significant for us. As I was thinking about this, it struck me that that Paul, you know, he does things at different times. He does different things at different times, and he does different things in different ways. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, there are places where Paul simply tells the Philippians, for instance, he says to them in Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. So it's like, don't do this, do that. And then he just moves on. There are other places, however, in his letters where he agonizes through why it is that he doesn't want to do the good he ought to do, he knows he should do. Instead, he does the evil that he doesn't want to do, right? That's what we read about in Romans 8. I mean, I'm sorry, Romans 7. We read Paul agonizing about the fact that he knows the good he ought to do and he doesn't want to do it. And he knows he shouldn't do the evil, but he does it. And, and now, in Romans 8, what he's doing is he's fleshing out how do you get from that 
wretchedness. Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am. And listen, I know that people in this room look pretty and they look like they got it all together. We're all wretched. We're all wretched. And if you look at somebody and you're tempted to think, oh, he's not wretched like I am, you need to think again. You just don't know their, their troubles. Every, anybody in the human condition is wretched. Anybody confined to, to this fleshly existence is wretched. You can count on it. The, the Bible is telling you that's the case. So Paul says, wretched man that I am, Romans 7, 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's why we're all wretched. We've got this body of death. Even if you've been made alive, even if you've been regenerated, you still have these appetites, these inclinations, these desires, these afflictions that you're going to deal with until you get translated into glory or Jesus comes or you die. It's going to last until then. Now, what Paul does in Romans 8 is he says, okay, let's start working together on how to respond to this wretched condition that we're in. And, and the first thing, look at what he says in Romans 8.1. Having, having said in 7.25, I skipped that, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus is going to rescue us from the wretchedness. And then he says, he makes this comment about how I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That, I think that's the essence of the wretchedness. You know what you want to do, you know who you want to be, but then in your flesh, you're this other thing. Look at Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What Paul is doing is he's helping us deal with the wretchedness. What he's doing is he's saying to you, if you, if you are in Christ Jesus, if you are going to be, if, you're, if you've turned away from your sin and you're confident that Christ died on the cross for your sin and that he's coming back and you're ready to serve the law of God with your mind, 725, you know that Jesus is going to rescue you. If that's the case, there is no condemnation. There is no, and then he explains why in Romans 8, 1 through 4. And he goes through how God has done what the law could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of... You, you know the passage. If you don't know the passage and you're dealing with this, I would encourage you to memorize the passage. But, but what Paul's doing is he's saying, here's how to respond to the wretchedness. Know that if you are in Christ, if you are united to Jesus by faith, there is no condemnation before the throne of judgment. And then it's like Paul says, all right, we're going to need some help getting that to sink in. So here's how you get that to sink in, Romans 8, 5 through 11. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So it's like what Paul is saying is, number one, you need to know there's no condemnation. Number two, you need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit to deal with the wretchedness, to respond to this difficulty of life. Um, this morning, uh, we ran out of eggs at our house, even though the smothers were so kind to give us a bunch of eggs. We ran out of eggs, and we always have eggs on Sundays. So I ran to Walgreens, and I'm looking at the Courier Journal there, and it, the big, bold headline, suicide rate for young... I, I don't remember the exact wording. It's in my bag here, but the suicide rate has skyrocketed. It's doubled in the last few years. And, and Colin talked to us last week about this age of anxiety that we're living in. Paul is telling us how to deal with these realities. If you, 
If you will steadfastly resolve to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, you will be able to persevere. It's as certain as what what Paul writes here, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. This is, Paul is outlining for us how to deal with these difficulties. So in 8, 5 through 11, he goes through what it looks like to set your mind on the Spirit, what you need to think about, and, and how you need to walk. And then in 8, 12 through 17, look at 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. So, number one, there's no condemnation, 8, 1 to 4. Number two, you need to set your mind on the things of the Spirit, 8, 5 through 11. Number three, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. So you, you, you go to war against, um, against these impulses. You know, one of the difficult things about preaching a passage like Romans 8 is that um, great preachers have great, preached great sermons on this passage. And if you've never heard uh, John Piper's sermons on how to kill sin from Romans 8.12, you, you ought to start with the second one, R- Romans 8.12, How to Kill Sin, Part 2. I think that's the best one. You can listen to the other two if you like, uh, if you like that one, but that's the best one. And I'll, I mean, there's this really profound moment when uh, Piper says, I hear so many Christians murmuring about their sin, murmur, murmur, make war! You know, what he's saying is you need to... Put to death the deeds of your body by the Spirit. And then we looked at how in this passage, 8, 12 through 17. Denny will rate my imitation of Piper later. Um, 8, 12 through 17. We looked at how in 8, 14, um, Paul says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And we thought about how the Son of God, Jesus, would act, was actually led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And then, right after that, we've received the spirit of adoption as sons in 8.15, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Son of God, Jesus, cried out, Abba, Father, as he was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. So I think what Paul is doing is he's saying, it's, it's the Holy Spirit that you've received that will help you in those moments of temptation when the wretchedness feels like it's going to wrench you away from God. And then he talks about how we'll be will be um, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 817, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And I, I talked about how this suffering, uh, these pathemata, and, 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 and the verb that's used here, this is a verb that's often used to describe the sufferings of Christ in his passion, in his death on the cross. So we're being called to take up the cross, to fight temptation, to, to fight the impulses of our flesh, and, and we're equipped with the same spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness to prevail over temptation. And that same spirit enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, the way that Jesus cried out, Abba, Father, when he was tempted. This is what Paul is, Paul is, Paul is teaching us how to respond to the temptation to sin and to the afflictions of this fleshly existence. And then in 8, 18 through 25, he goes through this future hope. And, and he's saying that these, these sufferings of the present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And then, then he talks about this, this glory that's going to be revealed. This, if you look at 8.21, uh, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
And that brings us to the passage that we're looking at today. And the reason I just walked through that is to say this. The topic has not changed. Paul is still, still dealing with how do you respond to the wretchedness. When, when, when you're in this broken down body that has these wicked inclinations, and, and you're in, our inclinations are all different. Some of us are inclined to worry, so much so that it, it, it causes our bodies to hurt. Causes, I, don't, I don't know. Some of us are inclined to lust. Some of us are inclined to greed. Some of us are inclined. We're, we're all inclined in different directions. But what Paul is doing is saying, here's how you can deal with this. You understand what I'm saying? It's not just, don't do this, do this here. It's a whole, long, fabulous chapter that's, that's telling you, number one, there's no condemnation. Number two, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Number three, you've received the Spirit of of adoption as sons. Number four, you have this fabulous future hope. And then 826, look at that word, likewise. That tells us we're still dealing with the same theme. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. The riff's on your side, you know? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. What kind of weakness are we dealing with? I think we're dealing with the kind of weakness that you read about in Hebrews 5. Uh, Hebrew 5, Hebrews 5 says that the high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. And I think what's happening there in those, those three descriptors, ignorant, wayward, and beset with weakness, I think the author of Hebrews is telling you what it looks like for somebody to commit sin even though they're fully committed to the Lord. In other words, this is not somebody who's committing the high-handed sin and throwing off the covenant. This is somebody who wants to walk with God, and they keep blowing it. Why do they keep blowing it? Hebrews 5.2, you're ignorant. You're not mindful of everything that you should know. You're wayward. You have these impulses to do things that you wish you didn't have impulses to do. And you're beset with weakness, you're not strong against temptation. You don't resist it. You don't flee it. You're weak. 820, Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The weakness of sinners. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And then he continues, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Now, we just saw back in 8... Um, 15, Paul say, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I think that Paul has in mind here when he says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us. I think what he's saying is something like, I'm comparing your struggle against temptation to Jesus's struggle in the garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus knew exactly what the Father's will was. Jesus knew that it was time for him to go to Jerusalem and he was going to get crucified. And I think Paul is saying, we're not Jesus. Even, even Paul himself, you remember 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says three times, I pleaded with the Lord for this thorn in my flesh to be removed. And, and then God said to him, 
my grace is sufficient for you. Now, I think that indicates that Paul didn't know what to pray for as he should have. So Paul is praying for something, and the Lord, it's like the Lord is saying, no, no, Paul, you're praying for the wrong thing. You should be praying for the ability to endure through this. You should be praying for what I'm going to bring about in you as a result of this, and you don't know, but that's okay. My grace is sufficient for you. So I think Paul is saying, unlike Jesus, who knew exactly what to pray for in the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We don't know whether we should pray for this affliction to be removed, for this temptation to be taken away, or whether it's God's purpose for us to go through that and Him to perfect us through it. We don't know. But Paul says, look, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Notice how in 8.22... We know that the whole creation has been groaning. And then 8.23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. And now the Spirit himself, 8.26, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I just want to confess to you that I'm totally mystified by this. I don't know how it is that the omniscient spirit of the holy God, who is omnipotent, groans. I mean, it so- groaning sounds like I want things to be a certain way, and I'm straining so hard to get them that way, and, and I'm groaning with the weight of it because I can't accomplish it. I don't know how to think about the spirit doing that. The Spirit knows exactly what's going to happen. It's it's a mystery how this happens. But what this text is telling us is that the Holy Spirit himself enters into our experience and groans right along with creation and right along with those who have received the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Denny read those passages from John 14, 15, and 16. And as I mentioned, um, the, there's this Greek word there that means, that's, that's, it's the Greek word paraclete. And that word can mean helper, which is the way I think uh, the translation that Jenny, Denny read um, renders it. It can also mean advocate. And the word advocate would fit this context, wouldn't it? The Spirit himself intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit is like an advocate for us before the Father. One one scholar responding to this, he said, since these intercessory groanings of the Holy Spirit coincide completely with the will of God, then the requests are always granted. And, And that's really what Paul says next. Look at verse 27. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So I think he who searches hearts is God the Father. God the Father knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Why would he say he knows what is the mind of the Spirit? Well, it seems to me because the Spirit is interceding with groanings too deep for words. Another way to say that is that these are groanings 
that, are, that cannot be articulated. They're, they're groanings that take place without words. And in spite of that, God the Father knows the Spirit's mind because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You can see a perfect unity here between God the Father and God the Spirit. And, and let me draw your attention to 834 at the end of that verse where it talks about how Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And what this tells us is that wretched though we are, afflicted though we are with our bodily impulses, the thorns in our flesh, which may be, uh, they may be, I don't, it could have been a disease that Paul was struggling against. It could have been a temptation. We don't know what it was. He doesn't, he doesn't elaborate on it. In spite of that, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are united in their efforts on our behalf. David Peterson writes in his commentary on Romans on this point, Thus God as Trinity acts to sustain his people even when words fail to express, express their deepest anguish. God as Trinity acts to sustain his people even when words fail to express their deepest anguish. We can't articulate it. Uh, we, my wife and I run into this all the time. What's wrong with you? I don't know. <laughs> Have you thought about it? Yes. I can't figure it out. I don't know what's wrong with me. I am not able to articulate it. That's, that's kind of where I live. Um, out of touch with myself. But, but God as Trinity acts to sustain his people even when words fail to express their deepest anguish. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the Father, these, the Spirit is groaning with this wordless anguish, and the Father knows what is the mind of the Spirit in verse 27. Because the Spirit intercedes in accordance with the will of God. So we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit does. And the Father knows what the plan is, so it's going to come to pass. I want to offer an application here to this. And it's simply this. Commit yourself to prayer. And I don't, I don't mean, I don't merely mean, I do think that you should cultivate the spiritual discipline of spending time in prayer. I do think that you ought to mark out some time in, in your daily schedule, whether it comes early in the day, middle of the day, end of the day, whatever, I think you ought to cultivate the discipline of setting some time aside and going to the Lord in prayer. I don't merely mean that, though. I mean that, that when things happen, you should call on the Lord in the, midst, in the midst of things. As the events are unfolding, you should cry out to the Lord for help. We're so good at talking to each other. Something happens and we immediately go find somebody that we want to discuss this with. with or... Uh, something happens and we set up an appointment to have a meeting with somebody or we get on the phone and talk to somebody about it. Let's become people who immediately go to the Lord in response to these things. We don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit is interceding for us. We should still commit ourselves to prayer. And then, so we got, we got the Spirit interceding for us in verses 26 and 27, and then we've got God's 
unassailable purpose in verses 28 through 30. Look at verse 28. Paul says, And we know that for those who love God, and I just want to observe here the way that John 14, 15 started. Jesus said, and he's talking to his disciples. They love him. They've already said, Jesus, John 6, Jesus says to his disciples, people are going away because he's saying offensive things. And he says to his disciples, do you want to go away too? And they're already at the place where they recognize we don't have anybody else to go to. You have the words of eternal life. So they're already, already believers. And he says to them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give to you another helper or another advocate, the Holy Spirit. He is with you and he will be in you. So Paul says here, we know that for those who love God, he's talking about believers. He's talking about people who hear the Bible say, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and everything in you says yes, yes. That's what, that's what he deserves. That's who he is. And that's, that's how I want to respond. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I submit to you that what this means is that no matter what happens in your life, God is designing it, orchestrating it, for your good. It may not have been a circumstance that you chose. It may be something that you regret. It could very well be something that you did that was evil. And yet God will bring good out of it. We can think of Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And later, Psalm 105 tells us, God had sent a man ahead of them to prepare the way for their descent into Egypt. And Joseph says to his brothers at the end of the book of Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. So I, this is not a license for you to do evil, by no means, in no way. But it is, it is a way for us to deal with the things that we've done in our lives, that we regret, that we wish we hadn't done, and even things that have happened to us in our lives. The Bible is telling us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It's like, I, I, it's like a sculptor. And it's like God is the sculptor and we're the, the rock that he's hewing into something that's going to look like Jesus. And the, the hammer blows and the chisels and the sandpaper and whatever else the sculptor's going to use, it may be painful, but it's all part of making that thing look like Jesus. All things work together for good for those who are called. We'll come back to that idea when Paul comes back to it. According to his purpose. So you're being asked, I think, by the Bible here to trust this. You're being asked to trust that God has a good purpose for your wretchedness. God has a good purpose. And that goes back to what we said when we talked about the hope. And we said the suffering is not limitless. It's going to come to an end. And the suffering is not pointless. It has, it has a purpose. You're called, if, 
If you believe in Jesus, you are called according to God's purpose, and all things are working for good. And then Paul goes into what's called this golden chain here in verses 29 through 30. Um, and, and he talks about this purpose that God is, is working out in the lives of these people who love God. Uh, you may be sitting here and you may be thinking something like, I'm not sure that I love God. I'm not sure that I've experienced this call according to God's purpose, but I really... That'd be kind of nice to have all things work together for good in my life. And, and um, what we want to say to you, we, we who do love God, is we, we simply want to say, if you don't feel a love for God, we, we think it's mainly because you haven't met him. You haven't encountered him. You've, you've not, maybe you're reacting to a mistaken notion of who he is. But if you come to know him, we think... what. Well, our experience has been, personally, that once you come to know him, you can't help but love him. The only way you want to respond is to love him. And, I mean, I, you know, this is, it's sort of a miracle that you come to meet God, but we want you to meet him. And we'd love to talk with you further about what it looks like to know God, to experience the intercession of the Holy Spirit on your behalf, to experience God's presence with you by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We'd love for you to experience that. So please do come talk to me after the service. Come talk to Matt after the service. Denny's up there in the balcony. Uh, there are guys all around you. You could probably talk to the person next to you, and they're more than happy and, and be thrilled to talk to you about what it looks like to know God and, and how it is that you come to feel this love for God. It, it's magnificent, and, and that's what we want for you. We want you to experience God the Holy Spirit interceding for you, and we want you to experience God the Father orchestrating everything in your life for your good. And if that happens for you, everything in verses 29 and 30 will be true of you. Verse, verse 29, Paul says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And this is talking about God foreknowing people. And the question, one of the questions that this passage prompts is, what kind of foreknowledge is this? And um, some people look at it and they say, well, it means that God looked down through uh, the passage of time and he saw who would respond rightly to him. And then he predestined those people. I don't think that's what it means. And the, one, of the, one of the many reasons I don't think that's what it means is because of what 1 John 4 says when it says, we love because he first loved us. So, so God loves us, and then we respond to that. And then another reason is because this kind of knowledge, this foreknowledge, um, is used elsewhere in the Bible to talk about God setting his love on someone and entering into a covenant relationship that God initiates. So, for instance, God says of Abraham that he has known Abraham. And what he means is he's entered into a relationship with Abraham. So, verse 29 here, those whom he foreknew, those whom God entered into a relationship beforehand with. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So this is the sculptor's design. The sculptor is making 
uh, the, the blocks of wood and stone, us, humanity, into the image of Jesus. So he's, he's entered into this covenant relationship with us beforehand, and he's predestined us for conformity to Jesus. Let me, let me just remind you about how um, this, this is what Paul was talking about earlier when he says, for instance, in 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. So he raised Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise you from the dead. And then uh, we've received the same spirit uh, by whom we cry, Abba, Father, 815, that by which Jesus cried out, Abba, Father. And this is also what Paul is talking about in 821 when he talks about the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And it's what's, what he's talking about in 823 when he speaks of how we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's ultimately conformity to the image of his son in 829, which is also, at the end of 830, what it means to be glorified. It means to be like Jesus. So those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Um, I, I think that the illustration that John Piper used, is, again, uh, John Piper, it's, it, you know, it's, it's sort of a shame to have to preach the Bible after Piper's preached it, but that's, that's where we are. Bear with me here. I'm doing the best I can. Uh, Piper used a great illustration of this, I think. He, um, he said, the, the, when, you, when you replicate something, you're celebrating what's being replicated. So what you have in, in, in trophies, for instance, is you might have a whole bunch of little trophies that are all replicating the one big trophy that's, that's the ultimate trophy. And that's kind of what we've got here. We've got Jesus, and, and Jesus is being celebrated as his image and likeness is being replicated in us. This is all about the glory of Christ. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then in verse 30 he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. There's a very important point here about the nature of this calling. Um, you know, there, there are some statements in the Bible that say things like, many are called, but few are chosen. And, and there, what you have is this general call to salvation. It's sort of like the call that's going out from this pulpit right in here, right now. If you're an unbeliever, I'm saying to you, turn to Christ and be saved. Uh, believe in the Lord Jesus, call on the name of the Lord, and you will be saved. But this call, notice how he says, those whom he called, here in verse 30, he also justified. And Paul has been teaching all through this book what it is that justifies. It's faith, isn't it? Faith is what justifies. But Paul doesn't say those whom he called, he also gave faith to, and those who exercised faith, he also justified, but it's implied. So this is what we call the effectual call. This is a call where, where it's not just a general call, it's a specific call. This is Jesus saying, for instance, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I call my sheep by name, and they come to me. This is, this is a calling that people, they hear this call, and they don't want to disobey it. 
They don't want to resist it. They desire to respond to this call. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. As though it's already happened. You see that? It sounds like he's already done this. And yet we're still in process. Why is Paul telling us this? Paul is telling us this as part of the... This is one of of the sections in which he's telling us how to deal with the wretchedness that we we live in as human beings. In in our flesh, where we have physical diseases, where we have uh, temptations we can't resist where we feel things that we don't want to feel. And and Paul is going through these things, telling us, look, the Spirit is helping you in your weakness, verses 26 and 27, and God is absolutely going to accomplish His purpose. You notice as you go through those, those statements in verses 29 and 30, nobody drops out. Everybody that's foreknown gets predestined. Everybody that's predestined gets called. Everybody that's called gets justified, and everybody that gets justified gets glorified. So it's it's like Paul is saying, verses 26 and 27, it's a bad analogy, forgive me, but nevertheless, the ref's on your side, the outcome of the game is secure. You have the Holy Spirit as your intercessor, and God, he's he's glorified you. It's, It's done. And yet it doesn't feel that way, does it? Often it doesn't feel that way. So how do we we make it, how do we grow in living out these truths of Romans chapter 8, which I submit to you are all helping us to respond to the wretchedness of Romans 7, 24 and 25. I just want to restate what Paul has said with with, um, little, little prompts, okay? 8, 1 through 4, meditate on the condemnation-removing power of the gospel. There's there's application number one. Meditate on the condemnation-removing power of the gospel. You know, if we're people who for us, the great white throne of, of judgment at the end of all time, if that throne is more significant to us than the opinions of rude people that we work with or that we go to school with or whatever... Um, people that criticize, whatever, if that throne of judgment is more significant than the opinions of people, Romans 8, 1 through 4 will be huge in our thinking. Meditate on the condemnation-removing power of the gospel, number one. Number two, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, Romans 8, 5 through 11. Um, if you set your mind on what comes across your screen on social media, this is not going to work for you. It will have no power in your life. And, 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 and you'll probably say something like, well, I tried the gospel and it didn't help me. But if you will set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and if you'll persevere in that, you'll find, I think, that you're able by the Spirit, Romans 8, 12 through 17, to put to death the deeds of the body by the power of the same Spirit that kept Jesus through his temptations. Number four. Set your mind on the future glory to which present anguish is not worth comparing. Romans 8, 18 through 25. 
You're on to what I'm doing now, aren't you? I'm just walking through the passage. I'm telling you, you need to know these things. And I'm telling you that the truths of Romans 8 need to become more real to you than all the stuff in your life that would lead you into sin, that would make you feel anxiety, that would cause you to feel greed, whatever, whatever it is in your case. Next, remember that the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom Jesus gave to us, is interceding for you. God the Spirit is on your side. God the Spirit is... This is remarkable. You know, this, this is so mind-blowing that, that um, there have been many interpreters that have almost like reworded the passage because it's so... It's so hard to get your head around this. But you can, you, can, you can go look at the history of interpretation and read how people have interpreted this. And it's like they will not let the words of the passage say, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Some of them because in their culture, anybody that does intercessory work is like viewed as like a lower order of being than a benefactor. And, and for them, it's just inconceivable that God the Holy Spirit could be the intercessor and not the benefactor. And as a result of this, they will not let this verse say what it says. But the verse says what it says. The Holy Spirit himself is interceding for you. That's a glorious truth. And then finally, from Romans 8, 28 through 30, know that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. Don't, don't get hung up on predestination and election. We'll talk about that more. We're going to get a lot of that in Romans 9. We'll get to that. Just bank on the fact that everything God sets out to accomplish, he's going to bring it to pass. That's what this is here to say to you. This is here to encourage you that if God has foreknown you and predestined you and called you and justified you, he's also glorified you. So the outcome is secure. This is much better than a cheating referee. God's not cheating. God put Christ forward to establish justice. And God has not rigged the game. And God is not doing anything unjust. What God is doing is he's saying to us, here's how you can overcome. Look at, look at uh, what Paul says um, at, at the end of this passage, verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. More than conquerors. I think in particular he's talking about conquering that stuff that made him wretched back in chapter 7. This is how you get there. The truths of Romans 8. Let's pray together. Father, you know how deeply we need your word to us and you know how deeply we need your spirit to take your word and to seal it to your hearts. And Lord, you know how deeply we need to have the kind of hearts that are ready to set our minds on your word and to believe that you're not going to condemn us and to, to know that you've not given us a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear and to think about this future hope and what's happening right now with the spirit interceding for us and to trust that every one of your purposes will come to pass. 
Lord, make us people who respond to these glorious truths rightly. Keep us from being presumptuous. Keep us from being sinful in our response to the Bible. Keep us from unbelief, we pray. And Lord, I pray that you'd keep us from being unloving toward you or to one another. Make us like Jesus, whose name we praise and in whose name we pray. Amen.